Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you for joining us as you do each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you to everybody who listens to the show. You guys have been sending us a lot of love. Keep the emails coming. Uh, we certainly appreciate all your feedback and all your thoughts as well. Make sure you get on iTunes, leave us a rating and review. We read all of them, and we want to hear the feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, we take all that stuff seriously because we want to put out the best show each week for you guys, and we know how much you certainly appreciate hearing these stories, and we want to continue to tell them and Tailor it to the audience, you know, to what you guys really want to hear each and every week. We think we do a great job of that, but we certainly appreciate all the feedback that you guys give us. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, that helps us as well. Uh, you know, again, the feedback that we get from those social media sites is awesome. It's also a way we communicate what episode is coming up this week and give you information about it. And this way you can also, you know, uh, know a little bit more about each guest before you start to listen. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter as well if you want. Mark Zinno, M-A-R-K. Z-I-N-N-O for both of those, and uh, I'll keep you updated on all the stories and everything else that I have each week with the Hazard Ground, so you can give me and the Hazard Ground a follow on both those things. Uh, final reminder about our promotion with Amazon, our deal with those guys, go to hazardground.com, click on the Amazon banner, and uh, once you click on that Amazon banner, you can do all your regular shopping, and we get a portion of what you guys spend, and we donate it back to one of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. And speaking of charities and veterans organizations, that brings us to this week's guest. Joining us this week is currently the executive director of the Headstrong Project. Previously, he was the director of leadership for Team RWB, that's red, white, and blue. He had multiple deployments to Iraq and a deployment to Afghanistan as an advisor to General David Petraeus. He is Joe Quinn joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Joe, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. All right, Headstrong Project, a huge undertaking. In fact, uh, you are in Atlanta as we record this because you guys are opening up a chapter here, which is fantastic because that's where I'm based out of. But you and I both native New Yorkers, so we'll be on the same page of this whole thing other than the fact that you're a Mets fan and I'm a Yankees fan. We'll let that part go. But let's start back to how you got in the military because uh, you, much like me, as a kid growing up in New York, a lot of people went to the military then. You know, it wasn't really like the greatest of options prior to the 9-11 world. It was almost like, why were you doing that? Yeah, correct. So I have no military background or experience in my family. We're sort of uh, young Americans coming to uh, America in 1927. And um, it was 1998 and uh, I got recruited uh, to play basketball and it was the uh, to West Point and it was the, the education um, and it was um, the ability to play Division One basketball and, and sort of the, the, the coach and the rec- you know recruiters at the time was you know, no one's going to mess with the U.S. There's no war in sight. So that was sort of the world uh, that we lived in from 1998 to 2001. Yeah. And when you said West Point to your family, what did they say to you? My mother said, no, no way. <laughs> you know, a, a, a God-fearing, good Catholic woman was, you know, no way of going there. My dad perked up with the, the zero tuition uh, and being the, the youngest of three boys and my 
you know, older brothers having to pay for college. It was sort of uh, get a scholarship or don't get to college in a way. So um, that that was appealing to, to a certain extent. Was there any part of West Point when your mother walked on the campus there? Because uh, if you've never been there, I mean, you know, you, you think about West Point and how regal it may be. But when you get there, you kind of get a real sense of what the whole thing is about. Did any of that sway your mom? No, no. Oh, really? She <laughs> always has these these intuitions that she just felt that this was not a good thing uh, the whole time. Listen, very supportive. Uh, you know, I have a terrific mother. I'm not trying to go that. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, very supportive in any, any way possible. But I don't, don't think she ever really gave in to the whole, the whole West Point experience. All right. So you did, obviously. You decide to go. Uh, the experience in and of itself for you uh, prior to 9-11. Yeah, hard. Hard. It was um, basically every weakness that I have, which is our many, were completely exploited by the West Point experience. Uh, just from, I'm not flexible. I can't even touch my, my knees unless my toes, but I have to take a gymnastics class. Uh, I didn't know how to swim. I was a rock swimming, so I'm taking swimming at 6 a.m. before going to math class, which I'm not as strong in math, more of a uh, English uh, literature major. Uh, and then on top of that, playing Division One basketball and, and just, you know, your day is just basically filled from 5.30 a.m. to 11 at night um, with, with, you know, the, the best of the best of from 50 states that are really smart, really athletic and really get after it. So um, it was it was hard. I would explain it in, in, in that one word. All right. Uh, for those who don't know, well, we're going to get to a very sensitive topic for Joe here, and that is 9-11. And I'll let him explain it. But you were a senior at that point in time at West Point? Yeah, I was a senior at first uh, at West Point at the time. All right, so you come back from, from summer vacation late August, right? You, you'd been in school, what, two or three weeks at this point? Where were you? Yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, two or three weeks. It was the week uh, the weekend previous to 9-11. Um, it was uh, ring weekend uh, where, you know, all the firsties, they get in their, their best dress and the dress mess and they have their dates. And we actually went to New York City. We did a boat cruise and the World Trade Center in the background. So it, it really sticks out in my mind as, you know, that feeling of, you know, security and safety. And yeah, we're at a military academy, but, you know, we're, we're, we're studying, you know, normal, regular college subjects and we're playing sports and so on and so forth. So there was a real dichotomy uh, those first three weeks uh, of my, you know, senior year at West Point in college leading up to 9-11. The morning of uh, take me through the events prior to the first notification that a plane had hit a tower. What were you doing? Definitely. So I was in class. Uh, I was in a Native American uh, literature class. And um, I remember during the whole, you know, the, the initial uh, when the, the plane hits the tower. So I think I, we must have left class maybe, you know, 15 minutes a- after the, the planes hit the towers. Uh, and if you've ever been to West Point or if you've ever been to West Point when – um, cadets are going to class. Uh, it's like mice in a maze. It's you see the same people at the same time, at the same moment, at the same second every day going to their class. I'm going to my class. It's just like clockwork. Military precision, I, we call it. Yeah, exactly. You're saluting the, you know, the same colonel that's going to teach his class. And I remember stepping out into the hallway and start heading back to uh, my barracks room, and there was something off. I, I and I, there was I wasn't seeing the same people. I would there was people whispering and talking, um, and I went up uh, six flights of stairs to Bradley Long Barracks um, to towards my room, um, and my my roommate uh, Joe Peppers at the time um, came down the, the hallway and said, you know, Quinny, turn on turn on the TV. 
the World Trade Center is on fire. And I, I clicked on it, and that was the, the first time I saw, uh, you know, the, the towers in flames. And um, so two things about that. One, my initial reaction was that it was a prop plane. It, it just didn't – the size of the towers were so immense – it just didn't uh, look like uh, a big deal at the time. Uh, yeah, much like everybody thought. I mean, yeah. you know, that was a lot of the initial reaction because no one had any video at that point in time of any plane hitting the tower. That didn't come until hours later, but everybody thought it was a small prop plane that just had an accident. Exactly. Uh, and then um, my mother called me uh, on my phone in my room, um, and I answered in a typical groggy uh, cadet voice because we're always tired. Uh, and she's just like, Oh, are you sleeping? I'm sorry. Are you sleeping? I'm like, no, I'm not sleeping. Like, are you watching this? And her first words was, I know I'm watching this. Um, oh my God. Um, my son is going to go to war. I, I told you, you should have went to NYU. You know, so that mother's intuition, uh, followed me through, through my senior year. Um, not even thinking, um, that my brother Jimmy was in any danger on the 102nd floor of, of the North tower. So the North Tower gets hit. Your mom is more worried about you at this point in time than your older brother who is in the building. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's just sort of um, our, 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 the moments in our lives just progressively got, got worse from there. Um, Did it occur to you to say, have you talked to Jimmy? Well, yeah, and then we, we just – yeah. Yes. And then it was sort of that after that statement was like, well, did you hear from Jimmy? And um, he, he had a cell phone actually at the time. I think he actually had the original cell phone where the antenna like hit the ceiling. Yeah. Um, but all the wires were, were, were crossed. And then that like from there, she said, all right, you're, you know, my dad, who's a, a retired uh, cop in NYPD, he's just like, you know, dad's calling all his friends. And it was just that mad scramble from there of, you know, where's my brother? Where's Jimmy? Take me through the next hour, two hours. I mean, what are you doing? When does it really start to hit you that, oh, man, this is worse than we thought? Yeah, and then so immediately I started um, uh, calling his cell phone, um, and um, he had the same uh, voicemail. Um, you know, can't get to the phone right now. Please leave your number up as soon as possible. And I, that's embedded in my brain because I, it was just repeated over and over again after each, each and every call. And... Um, just and then watching everything unfold on, on the television, um, and it you know then the, the the South Tower collapsed. And honestly, so my brother was 23 years old. He was um, right out of Manhattan College. He was a year and a half into the job, just you know first job out of college. And I was at West Point. Like, I didn't know what tower he was in. I didn't you know it was just a mad scramble of calling home and finding out where he is. And then when that South Tower collapsed, you know, my, my, my heart just collapsed. And then, um, you know, calling home, like, which tower is in, what tower is in. And then realizing, although, uh, although the North Tower was hit first, it didn't, it didn't uh, fall first. It, it, it was up for about 90 minutes. Um, so there was hope in those 90 minutes that there was time to get out and just not really knowing the dire situation of the people caught uh, above the, the, hundred, you know, the, the point of impact between the 93rd and 99th floor. Um, and then from there, I remember looking over and I realized there was um, about 30 people in my room. Jets started coming in and I started screaming at them and I, I started cursing at my tack officer, which is probably not the right thing to do at the at that time. Um, and then, you know, there was an email, like, pray for Joe Quinn's mother who's in the tower. And I'm like, my mother's not in the tower. And it was just this 
very kind of overwhelming um, uh, situation on, until for 90 minutes until the, the North Tower collapse. And, um, you know, I think for all Americans, it, it, there was some visceral experience to watching the towers collapse. Um, and for me, my, my, my life, you know, hasn't been, been the same since. I can't imagine uh, the torture you were going through. You know, you and I talked previously before recording, and, you know, I had friends in that building as well, and, you know, they're all – I had friends on Wall Street that day, and, you know, you, your mind just races all over the place. And I remember trying to pick up my cell phone and call everybody I knew, and I just kept getting that beep, 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 beep. You know, the, the back then when you couldn't get through, when the towers were flooded, um, it just kept giving you a beep, 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 and, and you'd hang up and – you know, I, st- I started calling my family again. Everybody from my family is in New York. I wasn't in New York at the time, but, you know, I'm calling like crazy to try to find my brother who was working in Manhattan at the time. And, you know, that's sort of those moments of hysteria overwhelm you. Um, and what's interesting, I guess interesting is not the right word, but, you know, everybody we've talked to who was not in the military on 9-11 or but connected to the military prior to 9-11 you know, when, when 9-11 happens and I ask them what their first thought was, everybody's thinking, well, we're going to war. I'm sure that was the furthest thought from your mind. Yes. I mean, the furthest thought. Um, I So, you know, the next phase was trying to get the hell out of West Point. Um, and, you know, I hope there's, um, you know, I hope years later I can't be in trouble for this. But, I, you know, I essentially went AWOL. Um, and it was because it, it was your, 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 your brain says one thing. Uh, and your heart says another. Your brain is there's no chance he survived this, um, with, particularly with each minute that goes by. But your heart is he has amnesia in a hospital in New Jersey somewhere, and we got to go. We got to hit the streets and find him. Um, you know, and particularly the West Point experience. You know, I was a Brooklyn kid playing playing basketball, and um, you know, you're a cadet in your cadet uniform for you know four years, three and a half years leading up to that. And I remember just putting on my old clothes, my baggy jeans and my shirt and leaving the academy and thinking, I'm not coming back here. You know, um, this is over for me. Um, and Why did you think it was over? Because I just I, – I, the, the, to your point, like as far as being attacked or war was the furthest thing from my mind. My, my, my ultimate mission was finding my brother. And I didn't care. And that, I had this feeling that's going to take longer than I expect and – you know, the academy doesn't give out, you know, long passes very long. And I just wasn't going to go back on their, their timeline. Um, so I, I, I took a boat across the river to the, um, you know, the Amtrak and then went downtown um, and immediately started heading downtown, just trying to get as far back as possible. And, and there was just police barricade. And this is the next day, uh, the next morning, um, as my, you know, my tackle officer had me on lockdown. And um just, I remember going down there, and, and the the the, hard, the easiest way to explain it, it's like I, I've never seen a hole that's like thirty stories high. <laughs> there was just the, the, the wreckage. It was something out of out of a movie theater, and it wasn't until um, I called home and my and, and my mother said, you know, come home, and I said no, and then my father, who's retired cop, said, you know, get your effing ass home, and then I was like, all right, I'm coming home, you know, right, and uh, and then um, yeah, and then it was just. You know, I get home and it was just a hundred people. I'm coming from Marine Park, Brooklyn, which is just a neighborhood of cops and, and and firemen. If you're halfway decent at math, like maybe you go to Wall Street, you know. And um, just it was just like a it was it was almost like a graduation party, but no one was graduating. You know, just people bringing over food and so on and so forth. 
All right. So uh, how do the next couple of days go? I mean, I'm sure it's emotionally a blur for you when you try to think back and remember it, but um, can, does anything stand out? Yeah. So, um, you know, my father and my, my oldest brother, Michael, my uncle Tommy, we went down to the city and we were, you know, one of the families putting up flyers and if people around the city at that time, it was, the city was just, you know, filled with flyers of just missing people. It's the only way we could treat the, 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 the circumstances was that this person's missing. Um, and then, um, going to an, an event at, with Canna Fitzgerald. Um, and that's where Howie Lutnick, the CEO of, of Canna Fitzgerald basically, told the audience that no, no one got out. There were 658 employees um, in Kenneth Fitzgerald um, on between the 102nd and 104th floor and basically saying, you know, no, no, no one got out. And then I remember, you know, kind of breaking down and, and, and there was a social worker there basically saying, I, I told my father and said, you know, look out for your youngest, you know, usually the youngest kind of react in, in negative ways. And I can remember overhearing that, you know, um, and, and just, you know, eventually my, the same way my father told me to get home, he said, you know, you, you know, your ass is going back, going back to West Point. Um, and it was just this weird, uh, circumstance where, you know, uh, two months, you know, six weeks to eight weeks later, uh, we had a memorial service, you know, without his, his body. Uh, and there was, you know, a thousand people into the church and it was, we had speakers. It was like, you know, even outside that, you know, people came to support the neighborhood came to support, and um, it, it, it's just a weird circumstance now being back at West Point, trying to, to graduate, even though I can't swim, do gymnastics or math uh, while this, you know, hovering over me. They never found any of his remains ever? They never. He's one of about 1,300 that never found his remains. And, and the interesting thing about Kenneth Fitzgerald, uh, the CEO, was the only guy from the company who did survive. I think the story goes, correct me if I'm wrong here, like I think he waited to take his daughter to school that day. Uh, and didn't go in early like he normally did, and that's what ended up saving his life. Correct. Yeah, he's. Um, it was a very um, familial um, uh, company where um, brothers worked there, and cousins and siblings, and um, and he lost his brother uh, um, on nine eleven, who was who was at Canada Fitzgerald. So, you know, Mister Lucknick lost his brother, but you're correct. He had an, uh, something to go to his first day of school for his daughter, and that's sort of why he wasn't there that morning. All right, so you get back to West Point, um, and you're having to kind of go through all this with this just emotional, unreal emotional burden that you're dealing with. How do you cope in day-to-day when you get back there? You don't, uh, you know, and it was, if it wasn't for, um, you know, the patience and, the, um, you know, the, the leadership of just some outstanding leaders, um, you know, a handful that that, that really uh, – tried to help me, you know, to, you know, you, I know you talk about leadership a lot on this and, and so, sometimes the most shining moments, uh, of that is when, um, you know, someone's down on their luck, you know, someone's not, not fully optimizing, uh, their potential. So it was friends, um, and, and fellow cadets and, and it took a village to kind of, kind of get through it. When does the mental transition for you happen to from mourning your brother? And obviously that never stops. I please don't, I'm not being callous about that. I know you're still sure. mourning him to this day, but at some point there's a transition that goes from, you know, being broken every single day to, I got to get my stuff together because I'm going to war. Yeah. So, um, you know, so a couple things, um, I didn't even know the Pentagon got hit until uh, maybe two and a half till after the memorial service, maybe two months later. Really? I mean, that's how, 
um, like just focused on what transpired um, sure. in the North Tower. Um, so, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but, and again, you know, I'm also in an environment, um, when I say television at West Point, it was the first time cadets had television in a room. It was a small application on your computer. Uh, and we had phones in our room for the first time a year previous. So I'm also in an environment where it's sort of isolated. I, you know, I'm not watching the 24 uh, seven, you know, news cycle. Uh, but it was, you know, shortly after I, I remember, um, you know, it was like, the, it was almost like the internet was brand new back then. Uh, and I remember seeing a, a picture of Muhammad Atta and I remember, just thinking to myself, just, I want nothing but revenge. <laughs> that was it. That like, it was, you know, you're 21 and you know, you were, you're attacked personally and you know, whatever president Bush wanted me to do, uh, that that's what I wanted to do. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, as we learned, it's, it's, it's not that simple. <laughs> no, it's not. And it, again, I, I don't mean to try to over, take your, you know, your grief and everything. But I remember doing the same thing. I mean, I, I, the next day, I mean, I was so freaking out. Those, that was my city. Those are my towers. Those are my people, um, that were murdered that day. And I remember walking in my armory a day or two later and said, where are we going? Send me, I'm here. Like, I, what are we doing? Let's go. Like I was amped. Like I was, I, I wanted revenge the same way you did. Um, and, and that's sort of, it's more than anger. It's just almost the nerve. How dare they? You know, yep. how, how, yep, who, who, who the hell has the balls to do this to us? Yep. 100%. Okay. Um, you get to graduation. Is this a bittersweet moment? Yes. Um, listen, it's um, probably, you know, my greatest accomplishment for the, of my life. It, it was because, um, as I mentioned earlier, it was a hard school for me, you know. Um, and then given the circumstances and, you know, we had a hundred, you know, being so close, uh, to, to, to West Point, 50 miles north of, of Brooklyn and New York city, you know, I had a hundred friends and family, uh, come out and, um, president Bush, um, was actually there and basically gave the, the Iraq war speech. That, yeah. I mean, I guess where, you were, you were the going. first graduating class after nine 11, I assume then. Uh, you're correct. Yes. Yeah, so we were, wow. We were the first class that that graduated. Um, and, and again, you you commit to West point after your, um, um, after your junior, the beginning of your junior year, you're kind of locked in for five years, but I was also offered, um, it was just a very politically heavy environment at the time, uh, to, to get out that I wouldn't have to do my commitment, but to go back to your original point, I'm like, you know, no way, you know, like, no, and I always, I would enlist if I, you know, if I got kicked out of West point, I would have just enlisted, you know, at, at that point in time. But yeah, graduation was just sort of a surreal moment, uh, that everything that would follow of president Bush being there and basically giving, uh, the case for Iraq and then, um, seeing all our classmates and then my family afterwards and obviously uh, missing my brother. But, um, it was sort of a moment where, um, you know, we had almost fiend pride, uh, for the, for one day and just, just, just focus and, and at least, you know, something good, you know, is happening today and then we'll deal with the rest tomorrow. You commissioned as uh, what type of officer and where are you going next? Uh, second lieutenant. Uh, all that I knew in the, uh, yeah, in the artillery. Well, you know, listen, I, I swear to God, I, I this is going to sound crazy, but I never thought, of. Um, the military experience. It was like every day it was just survival. So it was like, I remember the commissioning ceremony being like, all right, what, what's this yellow bar? Okay. I'm a, okay. I'm a second <laughs> lieutenant now. Like, right. and, 
and like I was walking around, all my pins were backwards. I'm like, because literally, it's like you're in your cadet uniform, you graduate, and then all the cadets scatter to different parts of West Point to do your commissioning ceremony. And that part's not planned; it's all individually planned. So it was sort of like, okay, I'm guessing it was second lieutenant, and I, I had my. Um, um, I had my roommate actually choose my, uh, so I chose, I was artillery, uh, and it really just came down to, you know, having a, a, not really a very good class rank. Uh, and then, um, also the realization, um, a couple of branches I didn't get, uh, because of that class rank. And then it was sort of, uh, the, the right fit for me for, for that. So then I went on to, to my, uh, roommate Joe Peppers chose Fort Sill, uh, Oklahoma for me. So that's where I went next. Culture shock for a kid from New York, huh? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. That's why I said I go uh, Iraq and Afghanistan included. Uh, Oklahoma was the biggest uh, cultural. <laughs> yeah. I, I, brother, I know the pain of Colleen, Texas. So uh, that, that, that place was, was in a lot of cases worse than Baghdad uh, in several different ways. How quickly do you uh, end up deploying? What's your unit first? Where are you going? And, and how quickly do you end up in Iraq? Yeah. So, you know, again, and, you know, I, I really got to own up to that. I was not the best cadet and I was not the best second lieutenant, you know, when I got to Fort Sill and I was just, again, just still, still dealing with all this, these emotions and grief and just trying to kind of get by and survive. But one thing I knew, I just, Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever it was, I just wanted to deploy. Um, so I wasn't focused on, you know, a lot of guys were trying to get into ranger school or airborne school or some other school or try to get what post they wanted. I, I just wanted to deploy. So after the officer basic course, um, I deployed. So this would be, uh, first of all, actually, I was able to have stay an extra couple months at West Point after graduation um, to be closer to my family. But then I went to OBC and then I deployed to Iraq uh, with 25FA, which was attached to the 30CR in uh, September of 2003. Okay. All right. So two things here. One, um, when you went to Fort Sill, did anybody know about your personal situation? Like, was it almost like you were wearing a scarlet letter? Um, no, uh, just my roommate. Okay. So uh, nobody else, like none of your teachers knew, nobody else knew. No, I just didn't want to talk about it. You sure. know, I just, nobody wants to, to hear it. You know, at least that's what I thought at the time. All right. Um, and then one more, um, as you find out you're going to Iraq, there's no anger because of this whole thing originating from Afghanistan. The guys who killed your brother were from Afghanistan. There wasn't any of what the hell am I going to Iraq for? I wanted to go to Afghanistan and I, that's it. I would badger people. All right. I mean, this, I don't know how I got to sell on this artillery. How do I get to Afghanistan? What units going to Afghanistan? Um, but at the same time as the run up, you know, while I'm at Fort Sill, uh, it was, the, you know, weapons of mass destruction are in Iraq and Saddam Hussein has ties to Al Qaeda. And that was good enough for me. Uh, let, let's go. Let's do this. OK, uh, September 2003, you get to our six months after the invasion. Um, and so you're there for OIF one uh, weird time then, um, because, you know, a lot of the initial the initial combat was over. Um, yeah. And then you're just kind of sitting there and literally we're just waiting for the hornet's nest to get pissed. Like, that's kind of what was happening at that point in time, correct? Yeah, and again, typ typical Cherry Lieutenant, uh, you think I get laughed at, but I wasn't. Um, but um, the, the, our, our battalion took on um, uh, a casualty uh, to, to a roadside bomb, and I was at a bulb, a battle update brief, and we're, we're talking, and I'm you know, the brand-new lieutenant, and they kept an ID. Let's check for IEDs here, ID. And I'm just like, smoke, you know, what the F is an IED? 
you know, and it was so early in the war that it was actually a good question. Like it was like a normal question right. for a technical tenant to ask. Like he's like, oh, it's an improvised explosive device that, you know, there's, there's people who guess, you know, but, you know, don't worry too much about it. They're, they're not as lethal. And we were rolling over things and it was just, you know, pop like one shell and they'd break a tire. And it wasn't um, uh, until Special Nevada hit one and, and, and we had a casualty that was like, okay, let's start really kind of looking at it. So there's this combination of the insurgency brewing um, and then the mortars and, and pop shops and all that. And then at the same time, trying to train and, you know, as a artillery unit, you have all these odd jobs at the time. So you're, you're, you know, you're doing patrols, which is not as good as their artillerymen because we're, we're a little heavier than the infantry. You know, we need a, a little more water to kind of get through a hot day. And then, um, and then we're training at the, at the time, I think it was called the Iraq Civil Defense Corps or something like that, that mm-hmm. we, we, we trained for a weekend, give them 100 AK-47s, and we wouldn't see them the next week. they take the AKs, the paycheck, and not come back. So it was just the beginning of sort of like that shit show of, that would brew and foretell everything that would happen um, you know, that from that point forward. When you took that first casualty, uh, two questions. One – uh, what did it do emotionally for you? Um, again, you know, it's military can be like family. You know, these are guys that you train with and you know and everything else. So it tends to hit people very hard. Um, and then two, did the thought ever dawn on you, what the hell am I doing here? My brother's already gone. Why am I risking my ass for this? So it was uh, November 2nd, uh, 2003. It was the uh, the most loss of life of um, the coalition and, and U.S. forces to that point. Um, and we had um, uh, six members of our battalion, um, three from my battery, uh, that were killed when their Chinook was shot out of Fallujah. And, um, and you know, part of it was this debate. We, we didn't know how long we were going to be there. And I remember Saddam getting caught, and it was like, sir, are we going home now? I'm like, yeah, I guess so, right? Like that. Right. I mean, it sounds like it. Right. And then um, then there was this question of mid tour leave. And of course, nobody wants to go. Like, I'm not leaving my brothers here. I'm not I'm not that I'm not going to be that guy that leaves. Um, you know, so the, the, the command staff got together and I was for making them go. There was folks, uh, one um, one of our soldiers who um, whose wife was pregnant or, you know, it was those sorts of circumstances that go home, take two weeks, go see your family and then we'll be here. We'll take care of everything else and come back. Uh, and those were the six soldiers that were in that bird when it was shot and, you know, over Fallujah, they were all all killed. And I remember going to the command team and, and having to go back to, um, you know, my, my FDC and, and the platoon and say, you know, who was killed. And again, I was new to the battalion. The, um, my, you know, my soldiers were training with these folks for, you know, two years, you know. And also I was completely emotionally numb. Um, it was I, I read off their names like the away team in a baseball game. And they just went in just into hysterics. And I remember just looking at them and it's just something that I regret and feel shame about to my core to this day. I'm just like, what's wrong with them? You know, it was, I was just so emotionally just, I just lost that part of me um, at that point in my life. Um, And it was just sort of, you know, get back to work and, you know, we have to fire artillery and patrol uh, tomorrow. So, so get, you know, get your shit together, you know? Why do you feel regret about that? I mean, I, I look, I, I get it when you when you are doing it retrospectively, but um, you know, as you get further away from that moment, is it something you still feel regret from? Yeah, uh, you know, to a certain extent, um, and that's why I do what I currently do because it's you know 
you know, my family was attacked. My, you know, as you said, our city was attacked and, you know, all the you know, 7,000 plus, um, you know, soldiers and, 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 and military members have been killed since then and tens of thousands physically wounded and even more with invisible wounds. So I, I still, you know, try to channel that for good now, but, you know, it's just a moment in time where I was also charged with, you know, packing, you know, doing their personal effects and packing it up. And, um, you know, I remember seeing, you know, photos of their family and just, um, you know, going through a certain similar situation of a, of a family member having loss and, you know, not having empathy at that point of time. It's just something I still always, always think about. And, you know, now, you know, fast forward, you know, you start building a family and, and knowing that, um, you know, Specialist Conover, you know, his wife is pregnant and, and, and no longer with us. It's just, uh, you know, those are the moments, the emotions around that, that I think we struggle with more than the explosions or the violence. You know? But at no point in time did the thought ever enter your head, my mother's already lost one child. You know, I need to get the hell out of here and, and get home. No, and no. And that's part of the reason um, I try not to tell anyone. Um, and I, I think eventually it leaked out, um, you know, through fellow friends and cadets that I went to Fort Hill with, they were in battalion that told my, you know, command team because I didn't want that, you know, that, that sort of mentality, not only for myself, but for anyone else. I was, I was a soldier just like anyone else. And, and didn't want that to enter my battery commander's mind or my top battalion commander's minds, um, you know, at all. And I really, I didn't tell my parents I was deploying until we got, you know, until I got to Germany and I was, and the next plane was, was, uh, to Kuwait because I was just trying, uh, to avoid that, that mentality. Yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, I was fortunate enough, my first deployment, I deployed with, uh, I don't know if you know the name, Ronald Buka Jr. Um, Ronald yeah. Buka, the firefighter, is an iconic picture of him carrying all this stuff, walking up the steps as everybody is walking down. And I forget which tower it's in, but uh, ultimately, Ronald Buka Sr. never made it out. He's one of the 343 firefighters who were killed that day, and his son deployed with me and I always wanted to go up to him and say something to him. I always want, I passed him all the time and I always, I never had the courage because I didn't know if I knew what to say or the right thing to say, but I kind of just wanted to, you know, as a fellow New Yorker, throw my arms around him and say, Hey man, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm sorry about the loss of your dad, but, um, and they were, they, they wore t-shirts. They had a run there in Iraq and this was 2005. Um, when I was there with him, but they had a run, you know, honoring him and they had t-shirts made with his name on it and everything. So everybody kind of knew, but I kind of almost felt like it was, I was being that guy, almost like walking up to a professional athlete and, and saying hello and telling him how much you love him. You know, it was just kind of like one of those weird, awkward moments you didn't know how to approach. Um, but once people started to figure it out, did anybody come up to you and say anything? Um, uh, you know, I'm trying to think back, um, no, I, you know, again, I think eventually it got to the, the command team, um, uh, more so, you know, uh, you know, my, you know, my, my platoon that I was with. Um, so, you know, eventually, no, I, I really, I really don't, I really don't think so. Not, not to that, that sort of degree. Okay. Uh, how does this first deployment finish up? I mean, I know you sustain more casualties and everything else, but what's kind of, uh, you know, when you look back on it, what does this deployment mean what does it do for you how does it end yeah no i you know go back to you know one of your questions i remember um you know specialist preston you know we were you know smoking dipping like looking out you know the the, the sun was going down and we're just you know out um we were in um by hit we, you know we kind of went in uh to anbar we started yep. in fallujah then ramadi and then just we basically built up like a small fort and then keep moving uh west and then um 
I, I remember looking at, I remember, you know, he goes, what are we doing here? And I was just like, oh, well, we're here to, you know, uh, be a, have them shoot at us rather than the, the, the fob and uh, have them counter fire and, and all, you know, the whole stuff. He's like, no, like, what, what, what are we doing here in Iraq? And, and uh, it was probably the most honest thing I said to that point. I just said, I, I don't know, <laughs> you know. So it, it just sort of finished up. And I remember right before we left, um, we left, you know, I think it was April 2004. Um, and looking back, we were at Al-Assad and just watching these white connexes just be delivered. It was just endless rows of white connexes. And uh, just thinking that, you know, we're going to be here for a while. We're building, we're building cities here, you know, mm-hmm. this isn't, this isn't going to be short. And um, I also, we, so we drove, you know, back, we convoyed back uh, through Iraq to Kuwait uh, and then seeing the Marines come in. Um, Cause that was the first time the Marines came in in, in two thousand, you know, that, that spring of 2004. Uh, and then just saying a prayer because I'm, I'm I just because the, the the insurgency was just every day building up and getting worse and just uh, just saying you know God bless them this is going to be a tough couple of years here. All right, um, you come back from the first deployment. Uh, is, are your parents saying get out? I want you to stay home. What are your feelings? What are your thoughts? How much? I mean, obviously your brother is still with you, but how much of the motivation for revenge is still there? Yeah. So then, no, hundred percent. And then it was still, all right, I got to go to Afghanistan. That, that, that was it, you know? And so I ended up, um, you know, hanging out my, you know, I ended up being a general's aide. Um, and that, that's actually where I met my wife. Wait a minute. Um, you, the, the, the not so good cadet, the not so good second lieutenant ends up becoming a general's aide. Was this a punishment assignment or is it because you actually had improved? A little bit of both. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so um, well, well, a couple things. I said, hell no, I do not want. You know, you're on the line. You know, you're able to use language a little loosely when you're on the line. You know, and motor pool and whatnot. And um, you know, it was just, it was basically that job was to kind of go going back to point. You know what I mean? And um, you know, I think part of it, I was one of just a handful of lieutenants on the base that. Uh, had a combat patch at the time that was like sort of a new thing for for you know units as we were coming back from OIF one uh, and uh, this uh, particular general General um, Mark Graham um, wanted you know a veteran uh, that to deploy uh, and and for good reason he lost uh, his son uh, in in um, Kaladia in Ambar which was just you know a couple clicks away from me where I was at the time so he wanted. To have aid uh, with, with that experience. When you had found out he had lost a son, did you feel like the job almost was meant for you, given what you had gone through? Yeah. So you know, the Grams have um, just uh, you know an incredible story of their own. So um, so so the Grams they lost Jeff. Um, he was the oldest of the family um, in in February two thousand four to an IED in Caldea, and you know he. He saw the you know the shiny metal object in the bridge. You know he told this soon to get back, and that's when it exploded. So uh, he's a hero. You know he, he was you know the lieutenant you long for who's on the front lines. You know patrolling with his unit. You know I'll check it out. Told everyone to get back, saved lives, um, and that one's you know more so easy to talk about. The harder one to talk about is the Grams lost their middle child, uh, Kevin, uh, to suicide eight months previous. So they lost two sons within oh, eight months. And he was, um, 
an ROTC cadet. And, you know, obviously it, it was a rough, rough transition to me. I remember answering the phone being like, yeah, what do you need? And he's like, Oh, Joe, you know, you got to answer like, good morning, sir, man. How may I help you? This is a rough transition of him mentoring me to kind of be more sophisticated uh, on the phones. But uh, as we traveled, we really connected. And I remember we were in T- Tacoma once and we were having dinner. And, you know, I told him, I'm like, listen, it's just hard. I keep all this in because no one wants to hear about my dead brother. And he's just like, I want to hear about him. And we were able to kind of be open. And he was able to talk about his sons. And I was able to talk to uh, about my brother. And it was really... Um, it, it was it was really a, a turning point to really start you know opening up and, and talking about these things. You still talk to him today? Yeah, he's my father-in-law. Oh, <laughs> when you said it's how you met your, your when you said it's how you met your wife, I just thought you met her through the assignment. I didn't realize it was his daughter. Yeah, he's my father-in-law. And he's my number one babysitter. So uh, that is outstanding. Yeah. So um, I mean, talk about serendipity. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. Cause again, I, I wasn't in the best place in my life. And, um, you know, I, I honestly told them, um, she was the youngest, you know, we were both the youngest of the family. She was the youngest of three and, and we both lost brothers. And then to me, and what it did for me, um, I don't know even if this is healthy or not. And it's not, I've been I'm told through, uh, some sessions that it's not, but like, it was almost like, you know what, you know, th- this, this woman lost two brothers. I lost one. Like, get over yourself. Like, you know what I mean? And I really was a place, um, of just wanting to kind of help, uh, and, and, and connect, um, in that regard of uh, the same way General Graham and I were talking. Uh, I just didn't know she was going to be drop dead gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listen, I'm not going to lie. That was the next question I was going to go. I'm like, what's it like when you meet your boss's daughter and you're like, damn, she's a smoke show. <laughs> yeah. I just, it was, how do, again, I, how do I figure out how to navigate this without pissing off my boss and still keeping yeah. my job and yet somehow dating his daughter? Yeah, well, I remember, you know, my Uncle Jack, who I, I told about kind of this situation, he's like, uh, Joe, what are you nuts? This guy could send you to Guantanamo Bay. What are you doing? You know, and I'm like, ah, jeez. But I, I listen, I, I also chalk it up to um, – um, yeah, a lot of veterans, I don't know if you get this a lot. Um, we, we reminisce sometime about like those in between when you're back home in between deployments, there's this, this like, kind of like, don't give an F sort of attitude. Like your time is short, right. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not natural to my, um, to who I am to say, you know, what, F it, you know, give it, give it a shot. And, but I was in that moment, you know, coming back from Iraq and, knowing that I'd be gearing up to, to go elsewhere that like, and knowing how short my brother's life was, was like, F it. I think she's awesome. Like, uh, forget everything else, whatever comes, you know, whatever comes, comes, you know? And, um, so it was a little bit of that, but, um, they were just like so supportive. So, uh, Mrs. Graham, um, I went to pick up the general's laundry one day. Well, not his laundry. I take that back. I know general's getting in trouble for that nowadays. It was a different army back then, but uh, it was just to pick up some boxes or whatnot. And she gave me Melanie's number. And I, that was the hard part is I have had the number for about two days. And I'm like, how do I do this? And, but wait, uh, did you so, ask the mother for the number or she just no, she, gave it to you? She, she just, just figured that, you know, Melanie was struggling as well. And then it was, um, it was, it was probably four months later that they heard through the grapevine that I lost the brother. You know, again, I didn't like telling anyone. Um, and it was, you know, probably my former battery commander, battalion commander said, Oh, by the way, like, you know, this is four months into the job, you know, Joe lost, uh, you know, a brother as well, you know, the same way Melanie has. And I think it was through that regard that you should connect. Um, and, 
Um, and then it was from there, it was a series of just completely not sleeping for uh, the rest of the year because it was, uh, you know, it was just, you know, the same young love kind of thing. We were just, you know, up all night talking, but then I had to go to PT and go to work and do the job. And uh, it just really took off from there. But uh, that's the easy part, though, you know, the, the early part. But we, you know, we struggled after once, you know, going, going back, deploying back and then not really dealing with the underlying trauma that we both experienced. Uh, one more question. Does the general ever approach you and say uh, anything to you about dating his daughter? So um, I think after I didn't call after two days, um, he brought me to his office and just said, you know, I know what Carol did. Just, you know, it's okay if you wanted to call ourselves. So it's like, oh, you know, okay. 100%. 100%. <laughs> I was like, all right, great. You know. Uh, that's fantastic. All right. So the second deployment, um, you're working for General Graham the whole time? No. So I was uh, General Graham's aide for about eight months, and then I was General Mark McDonald's aide after that. Oh, really? That, that uh, job at Fort Sill. And then again, I, then I went to the Captain's Career course um, that they made me go to, and then it was, um, again, talking to Branch, I'm like, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Before the career course, it was, um, I was like, I want to go to Fort Drum, North Afghanistan. They're like, they're like, holy shit, this, this is the easiest uh, captain I ever talked to about assignments. He's like, no problem, <laughs> you know, like, you know. And then it was six months later that everything changed for Branch. That it was um, the, you know, the, there were drum, it was the drum up to the surge, and, and it was basically, sorry, Quinn, it's all about Iraq. Um, so, so then, uh, you know, essentially went on to be um, uh, a staff puke at the. Um, um, for about 17 months during the surge from November 2006 to about March um, 2008. And that's when you were in your, on your second deployment? Second deployment, yeah. So it was, it was kind of really interesting in that um, it was funny doing a second deployment, even flying in. You, you had other like new lieutenants and captains deploying for the first time. And uh, so, like there's pictures of me like smiling on the bird. And like, cause I, I just, you know, you, I know the trajectory. I know how we're getting there, you know, and sure. um, they don't really know what's happening. Uh, and also colonels. It was like, there was just people, this is the first point for many. So uh, for me, it was just really helpful to, to kind of go through those steps before. Um, but the really cool thing um, I, you know, during that time period um, I was able to be part of the reconciliation cell, which Basically, General Erdierno essentially said, I want what's happening in Ambar during the waking happening to the rest of the country. And it started as a, I started as a cell with one person with one other major, and it turned into a cell of about 25 about doing uh, the Sons of Iraq. So it was just being in meetings with Petraeus came and Erdierno. It was just really an interesting look to just travel around the country uh, and just see how um, the surge operated from that, that viewpoint. Um, you're still yearning to get to Afghanistan, which you eventually do with General David Petraeus, who you just mentioned. How does this whole thing come to pass? Because you don't do it in uniform, correct? Yeah. So after 17 months, um, Branch tells me, um, all right, we got a great deal for you. Um, 17 months in Iraq, like we're going to give you $25,000 that's taxed. And then we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to give you a command for a battery that's um, deploying back to Iraq in four months. Uh, <laughs> and um, I listen for a three year commitment, 25,000 after taxes. By the way, I haven't spent a dime in 17 months. Months, I'm, I'm Brooklyn rich right now. I don't, I don't need money, you know? Right. And, and um, so that was just sort of backed into a corner of, 
you know, you know, maybe I, I would like to eventually start a family. And I went to Iraq, my second deployment, I was 26. I came home, I was 28, you know? So it was like, uh, you know, you start really starting things. So that's when I got out of the, um, the, the military in, in 2008. How much and did your went, future wife at the time have a say in that? So that, that was the one of, you know, probably the most difficult year as well. And it sounds crazy. And that's the other thing trying to communicate to people about transition, um, because I'm out of the military and, you know, my aunt's like singing a novella that, you know, that finally you're out, you're safe. And um, I was uh, going to Cambridge to, to study at the Harvard Kennedy School for two years. And um, you're on terminal leave. And, um, you know, it's it's for everyone else. It's over. But to me, it was just just the beginning. And it was um, Melanie was finishing up her, her nursing degree at Oklahoma. And, you know, we essentially haven't seen each other in almost two years. You wow. Know? And it was, and then, you know, I went from 26 to 28, you know, she went from, um, you know, 22 to 24, you know, and these are just very moments in your twenties that are very transformative for you. Uh, so we just, we didn't know if we were able to survive. So we were apart for that year while she finished up her degree, uh, nursing in Oklahoma and then me, uh, in, in, in Cambridge. Uh, and it wasn't until the second year that we decided like, Either we lived in the same city together or, you know, we have a chance. And that's when she, uh, you know, came to Boston and we, uh, we were together. So how do you get linked up with General David Petraeus? So um, part of the reconciliation cell and, you know, the Sons of Iraq movement and it was all these uh, colonels and whatnot. And so, again, my whole I studied Afghanistan um, during my two years in grad school. Again, my whole goal was to get back to Afghanistan. And I was thinking – um, and just seeing how the, the things changes, things change it for a point like where you do encounter insurgency, you're seeing the successes of the surge. And to me, it became less about, um, you know, violent revenge, if you will, of, of being on the front lines and more about going to Afghanistan and making a difference. Um, so it was General McChrystal actually set up this um, um, advisory that they were looking for people. And I, I figured that trying to go state department, trying to go government route would have been taking too long. You know, it was like this, I was kind of lucky being at West Point my senior year that I was immediately commissioned. I could go right away and try to get there right away. All these other routes to Afghanistan took so long. So I was able to be part of an advisory assistance team. Um, and I actually started out with General McChrystal because it was all the same folks in the inner circle between McChrystal and General Petraeus. And then the Rolling Stone article happened as soon as I hit the ground in Afghanistan and then General Petraeus sort of got the band back together for a lot of his staff that was doing stuff. Um, the successes they had in Iraq, they were trying to replicate uh, in Afghanistan. Kind of fortuitous, I guess, that all that, uh, from a timing standpoint, happened the way it did. Um, so when you finally get to Afghanistan, what's your thought? Um, it, and, you know, I hear a lot of people just swing ideas about policy around Afghanistan. And it's almost a requirement to spend some time at the ground because – it's a complete, you know, particularly compared to Iraq, it's a completely different oh, thing. Oh God, it's and two it was, different wars. And I, I was, I was, I was naive to think that I could, the experiences that we had. And, and, you know, the other thing to go back to is like, um, you know, how war changes is here I go with utter revenge against Al Qaeda. But in, in 2007, I'm shaking hands with former Al Qaeda and Iraq members to bring on to the sons of Iraq and start fighting with us, you know, like, um, which was an absolute surreal moment. But to think that we could take those same principles and, 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 and I was not even study it and apply it in grad school and then apply it to a country like Afghanistan was completely, uh, 
sort of naive. Yeah, well, I, again, um, we, we've mentioned this a lot, but there's a reason Afghanistan hasn't been conquered in over 2,000 years. It's uh, it's not a place where you can survive um, without living on the ground. The terrain is unmanageable. The temperatures at times can be, you know, varying from hot as hell to freezing. And it, it it's like nothing else that Earth has ever offered. Um, and obviously you know that. But when you leave the Afghanistan experience, do you feel any sense of fulfillment or any sense of completion as far as it pertains to your brother? No. Um, so the, the, the crystallizing moment for me, I wrote, I wrote this white paper called the perfect counterinsurgent. And it was just about, you know, forming, um, local police forming just basically like we did in the sons of Iraq that, you know, a kid from Brooklyn's not going to know who the enemy is. The people in the village do. So let's empower them and arm them and so on and so forth. And, um, and the police and so on. And, and I published a report. I, I wrote something, um, you know, a part of a blog and, and we got the right team in Afghanistan. Um, and on my way back, I'm driving by myself in Kabul and, uh, I come to a checkpoint and, um, I get an AK 47 shoved in my, to my, to temp my temple in my forehead and basically, um, getting screamed at. And then I realized that it was about money. Um, so I had to like draw my firearm and say, F you, you know, like, and, 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 it was an Afghan policeman and I, I just, it, it was everything that, you know, I studied and trying to, trying to change things in Afghanistan. Um, there was other things that were, you know, Intel and things we were studying, but it was that kind of physical moment of like, this is how it is, you know, and that this is not going to be, this is not going to change. Um, and it took years, you know, I just published an article in New York times this past September, um, and really, it, it, what I finally realized is, you know, the people that killed my brother died the same day he did, right? Like, I, I can't kill Muhammad Nada. Right. Um, and I know terrorism is a tool, um, and I know all of this, but um, for, you know, 19, you know, assholes led by bin Laden and, and to, to inflict such damage, and then for us to spend trillions of dollars, you lose 7,000-plus service members, 20,000 injured, 20, 30,000 physically wounded, more dealing with invisible wounds, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of the civilian populace uh, being killed. Um, it just makes you think, what, what's, how, do we end, we should, how do we end this thing, and what's the utility of, of doing all this? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh... You know, and I'll say this to people who don't know anything about Afghanistan. You'll never change their culture until they want to change their culture. There's only one simple reason why America has lasted over 200 plus years. It's because we want it to. It's the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's not it's there's not any nobody wrote down a policy that says this is what America is going to be. It came and it was born from a belief that we were going to be a country, an independent country and have freedoms. And then all the other stuff followed. But until you have that initial belief and that that concurrent simultaneous belief that everybody holds together at the same time, nothing there will ever change. And because the people who live a mile away from each other may never talk to each other their entire lives because of the terrain, you'll never get them on the same page because they have completely different needs and completely different wants and desires. And that in and of itself is why Afghanistan is barely even a country in and of itself. It would, you could remove the borders and nobody would know the difference. I mean, that's really... What, what, what Afghanistan amounts to. It's a pile of rocks um, in, in the Western, in the Eastern Hemisphere, rather. So, uh, you know, I digress. You're, you're more of the uh, uh, political, you know, guy than I am from that standpoint, or at least the uh, 
you know, political science guy than I am, but that's just one guy's opinion on it. I don't know how far off I am from where you sit. Yeah, no, you're 100% right, is that it's easy to look at a PowerPoint slide with quarters and units and people, um, but that just doesn't, that's not real life. You know, like to, to your point, it's just this disparate group of people living in different areas um, and, and doing their own thing. And, you know, half half the villages I've been in, they thought I was Russian, you know, that the Russians were still there, you know, <laughs> you know, they haven't seen, <laughs> you know, it's just the, the, the fact of, of what's going on on the ground. All right. So Afghanistan, and listen, I could talk to you about, you know, that, that whole sort of policy of Afghanistan for hours. Um, it's, a, it's a very candid and lively discussion, to say the least, but we'll move on. Um, and you decide that you now have a new calling in life. Uh, how do you end up initially with Team RWB and why and all the circumstances? Yeah, so I was um, I was ended up teaching at West Point in the Social Department. And I was associate at the Combating Terrorism Center. Um, this is from uh, 2000, I guess, 11 to 13 or so. Um, and Mike Irwin, who's my classmate uh, at West Point, uh, we're really good oh, friends. Oh, really? Mike is a former guest yeah. on the Hazard Ground. Oh, great. Oh, awesome. Yeah, definitely. Mike's, uh, if you haven't, yeah, obviously you met Mike, talk to Mike. Just high, high energy. Just, you know, one of those people that's really instilling a lot of positivity and great things in the world. And um, it was, you know, around the time where, you know, social media was becoming prevalent. And I was writing reports and studying about, you know, some knucklehead, you know, terrorist 3,000 miles away, not three, more than, you know, thousands of miles away. Uh, and then watching, you know, soldiers and, 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 people struggling back home. And I'm just like, what the hell am I doing? Like I, I could, this is happening in my backyard. You know, some of the struggles our uh, veterans are, are having, you know, what am I worried about? You know, some, some American jihadists that, you know, got, got apples thrown at them in high school and now joined the jihad and is a big member of Al Qaeda, you know, like, but uh, like, you know, Adam Gadan, you know, so it's like, you know, so, so that was the transformation. Obviously Mike's a very motivating person. And he's like, you know, we need to help veterans transition. So, you know, Mike founded Team Royal White and Blue, and I was sort of one of the earlier adopters. And that's got, that was my entry point uh, to, to work with Team Royal White and Blue for about four or five years. And then over the last year and a half, uh, transition uh, to the Headstrong Project. Yeah, and, and the Headstrong Project is where you are now. Uh, tell me about that and, you know, the core of that as you are now essentially running that whole organization. Yeah, no, definitely. So while I was out of New York City with Team Royal White and Blue, and I would constantly refer uh, veterans that were struggling, like, oh, I can't sleep or whatnot, or needed mental health support uh, to the Headstrong Project. And, you know, as I was talking about Melanie, my wife and I, before, I remember um, it was General Ordierno that at the time I went to grad school, and my Melanie was a nurse, and, and so on and so forth. And he said, oh, you're an example of like post-traumatic growth. And I just remember feeling awful inside because it was a lie. We were dying. You know, we, we never dealt with our underlying traumas, you know. And um, it was in 2015 that I would always refer veterans to Headstrong Project when I went to the clinical director's office at Headstrong and said I had one more veteran to refer. It was myself. Um, so, you know, as I tell people, not only uh, the president, but also a client where my wife, Melanie, and I were able to get help and – um, now we're, you know, it's not about getting back to even it's, but we're thriving now, right? We're absolutely thriving. We have, uh, two kids, uh, Melanie's actually getting her nurse practitioner degree. She's be a nurse practitioner, uh, in a year. Um, we're physically healthy. We're mentally, well, her more so than me, but we're physically healthy, <laughs> me- mentally healthy. And that's where, for me is my passion of all these veterans that responded to nine 11, 
Um, there's no reason they should be struggling back home. So basically, Headstrong's mission is to heal the hidden wounds of war. And it's bureaucracy-free. It's cost-free. It's confidential. You sign up. You contact them within 24 hours. You see a psych. Uh, you get a psych evaluation within 48, and you're seeing a therapist unlimited um, that, that that same week. So that, that's just basically what it's all about. And we just opened in, uh, in Atlanta uh, today. Well, one congratulations on opening here in Atlanta. Um, this is a, a, a market that is full of veterans. Um, given you know, there's three military active military posts in this uh, in this general area, so you have you have a lot going on from that standpoint. Um, you know, when when you sort of put all the pieces of the pie together, um, do you feel like you know as the events transpired throughout your life that? you know, everything happened the way it was supposed to and for a reason. I mean, is there any sort of um, value to you in the loss of your brother? Uh, no and yes. And in the sense that, um, no, I, I don't think there is a plan. But but what I would say, uh, and I wrote about this as far as um, I do believe in post-traumatic growth and um, my perspective of life um, has definitely changed because, because and Melly and I is both of us because of those experiences, particularly the loss of my brother. Um, so it really just comes down to perspective um, and really grasping what right life is really about. It's about our loved ones and our relationships and uh, and his perspective. Like I, you know, I remember being on a flight um, and um, you know I was a flight out of Denver. We we're going to Laguardia and we didn't get in on time. So the plane turned around. We're hovering over LaGuardia in New York and went back to Denver, right? It's, it's insane. Don't ask me why they did that. But people were losing their mind. And I remember thinking, like, you know, I ate. I have, I have internet. I'm fine. Like, you know, so there's such a more perspective in life and a value of my relationships and, and just trying to, you know, serve and do great things in life and for people. But I would trade that perspective in, in a heartbeat uh, to have my brother back, to have Jeff back, to have Kevin back, to have Tommy Kennedy back, to have, you know, Specialist Conover back, to have them all back. And that, that's sort of the line that, you know, I constantly walk. Do you and your wife ever compare notes on your losses? Is there any value in that? Um, uh, yes and no. It's, it's, more, it's more about, you know, for a really long time, the only people um, that were really, really willing to listen um, about um, each other's brothers, particularly for her, um, because it was so close that um, she was best friends with Kevin and she was living with Kevin at the time um, and actually found him, you know, so there's oh, that geez. underlying, there's that underlying trauma of, you know, being so close to your brother. And then um, at what point do you even get to your older brother? Jeff? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so it, it's just been, um, you know, obviously, just on top of the normal things of of, of loving someone uh, unconditionally, but it is really special that we're able to talk about them in normal ways, like for you know their birthday or the funny things they do. My, you know, my brother was a crazy, crazy bastard. You know, and I'm able to tell her those stories, and she's able to talk about Jeff and Kevin in in good ways. And then she, you know, we also allow each other to have bad days. You know, uh, particularly around anniversaries and whatnot. So. Um, you know, we definitely uh, do continue to support each other in that way. What do you guys tell your kids about their uncles who are gone? 
Yeah. So my um, my daughter is two and a half, and and um, and my so my daughter is is, is Beckett, and, and my son is uh, Graham James, who's named after his uncles. Um, and um, I don't know. Uh, you know, right now it's it's sort of too early as far as it's too early to really. I, I think really what it comes down to is how do you describe uh, the violence uh, around their them not being here as they get older. Um, it's easier to a point to, to remember them and talk about them and tell the great stories and who they are and show them the picture and show them their stocking uh, during Christmas and whatnot. Um, but I, I think we'll, we'll have to post the image when we get there as they get older and more sophisticated on on war and, and 9-11 and, and what, what it all means. Have both of your parents ever compared notes as parents um, who have lost a child? Um, there's definitely a, a mutual support of particularly around the holidays that we're definitely stronger together than we would be apart. Um, and so there's just a ton of love and, and understanding. Um, and definitely my, my, uh, my mother, my, my, my mother-in-law, which is funny because my mother's from Brooklyn and my mother-in-law is from uh, Kentucky on the phone for two hours and both of them have no idea what the other is saying they can't <laughs> interpret it's just basically like tennis like yeah. my mother will talk for 20 minutes and then uh, mrs graham will talk for 20 minutes and then they'll hang up the phone like i have no idea what the other i couldn't interpret what they were saying uh but yeah i mean listen as far as million and i um losing and 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 dealing with the loss of siblings, I, you know, I can't imagine simply being a, a father now, uh, losing a child. So uh, for them to, to have that uh, together is definitely powerful. One more on, on your family, and just because, you know, we talk a lot about the human condition, but you guys are stronger together. Um, when you are together, do you feel more loss than love? Uh, no, um, no. Because um, it's a lot of loss, Joe. I mean, it, there's a lot of pain in that room, man. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and listen, it's just not even a couple. I think it's 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 human nature. You know, I described um, there was you know a thousand people in that church uh, celebrating my brother um, after nine eleven. Uh, we were never closer as a country. Uh, loss brings people together. Loss brings love. You know, it's it's the counter. It's the antidote. Uh, loss. So they, they coexist. Uh, but I always think love burns brighter. All right, let's take it back to veterans for a moment. The numbers are out there, the statistics, I don't need to tell them to you. Um, if you could sort of verbally detail a plan on how we change those numbers, what does it sound like? Definitely. I listen, uh, it's, it's plain language that it heads from one of the suicide. Um, and it, that sounds like a crazy statement, um, and it will probably be a generational thing. And we're going to need innovation and things to change in DOD and the VA and a lot of other things uh, to get there. But from the viewpoint of Headstrong, so what we do is we partner with best-in-class private clinicians across the country. 100,000 private practice clinicians spread out across the country. Um, and within a mile or five blocks of that clinician, there's a, a veteran in need with PTSD, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, what, whatever it means. Um, so it's not too crazy to think um, if those two entities meet and you start getting back to being the better version of yourselves because it's about stabilizing. How do you get to a stable place to be able to talk and communicate and go through therapy? How do you reprocess it, whether it's EMDR or whatever modalities that we have as evidence-based practices? 
to go through your trauma. And then, then the next step is integration. How do you integrate back to society um, and do things like mindfulness, you know, whatever it might be, uh, um, and tailoring it specifically to the veterans' needs? Because I'm not sure to say, Joe Quinn, you, you deployed, you're so blessed, you got PTSD and in 12 steps, it does not work that way. Our motto is, you know, how many lives can we save in the process to get to the end state? Joe, it's a, it's an amazing journey, an amazing tale. Uh, I know there's not a day that goes by that you're not feeling a little bit of sense of pain at a minimum for the loss of your brother, but uh, obviously you've moved to a place where, as you just mentioned, there's a lot more love than loss, and that's uh, as good as it's going to get uh, or, you know, as best as it can be given all the circumstances between you and your wife and the lives around you, but you know, again, uh, your story of serving your country and everything that you've done is incredible. And keep up the great work with Headstrong. Uh, I know RWB is better for you having been part of it. And uh, Headstrong will continue to, to, to go on and continue to do all the great things and enrich veterans' lives. And certainly, brother, it's, it's a pleasure meeting you. It's a pleasure knowing you. Uh, despite the fact that you are a Met fan, I, 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 do, I do love you. <laughs> I knew that was... <laughs> yeah, I had to wrap it. I had to bring it back to that, But uh, as, as we always bring it there. But... That said, again, man, uh, I, I wish you nothing but the best. I'm here for you, brother. I love you, and uh, let's let's stay in touch. But thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Definitely. And, you know, by the way, we firmly believe about ending the stigma that two and all divide is telling our stories. I, I listened to four or five podcasts last night, so thanks for, for what you're doing. And uh, from one fellow New Yorker to another, and um, that's our one and know, and the Yankees are one and know. We'll still see what happens this summer. Joe Quinn, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Sports have a way of bringing us all together. And at Sleeper, we developed a fantasy platform designed to make leagues more fun and personal. Sleeper includes an integrated chat and every feature you could want for your NFL, NBA, and even eSport leagues. Plus, it's completely free with no ads. See why millions have made Sleeper the fastest-growing fantasy platform. Download Sleeper on the App Store or Google Play today.